Welcome to Mind the Shift, a podcast about a shifting world and shifting minds. I am Anders Bolling. In almost every corner of the world, we have lived in a state of emergency for a year now. The pandemic is still here, although hopes are that the vaccines will ease the pressure soon. Some stress that this disease is less lethal than many others and think the measures are exaggerated. Others deem it a disaster. Humankind has had plenty of disasters, for sure. Natural as well as man-made. The Spanish flu killed somewhere between 20 and 50 million, mainly young people, 100 years ago. Floods killed 4 million people in China in 1931. Famine killed a million in Ethiopia in in the 1980s. A tsunami killed 200,000 people in South Asia in 2004. We need to get better at helping each other when disaster strikes, and we have become better. My guest today is a professor in global disaster medicine at Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, and the head of the Center for Research on Healthcare in Disasters at the same institute. He's a medical doctor specialized in general surgery. He did his first field work for Doctors Without Borders in the late 1980s, and has continued to work with that organization as well as for uh, World Health Organization during disasters. For example, in West Africa during the Ebola outbreak, Ukraine during the war there, and in Iraq and in Yemen. And after the outbreak of COVID-19, he has been an advisor on disaster medicine to the Swedish National Board of Health. And last fall, he was deployed as an emergency emergency medical technician coordinator, that was a difficult (laughs) thing to say, an emergency medical technician coordinator. Medical, emergency medical teams coordinator. Oh, teams, sorry. Emergency medical teams coordinator for WHO in Lebanon following the enormous blast in the harbor in Beirut. He has also published the book Katastrophe Doktorn, The Disaster Doctor. Welcome to the show, Johan von Schreeb. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. So, have you been back now uh, from Lebanon for for some time, or do you still have have the assignment there? So it was to the end of uh, 2020, but of course I remain in contact, and uh, now we're trying to publish uh, some of the work we did. First of all, of the experience of of international deployments to Lebanon but also um, looking on uh, or describing rather how to scale up uh, ICU beds for uh, COVID care in this type of context uh, in the public sector in a a middle-income country and the challenges of of maintaining quality. So I try to um, balance field work, uh, understanding what's happening in the field in the contemporary disasters, and bring that back to the university and try to sort of do research on it, package it, and and then publish uh, in order to... Mm to sort of uh, um, have have some evidence uh, or, or improve the evidence base for, for these type of interventions. Yeah. So you've been back for a few weeks now or yes, a couple of months? Yes. Okay. So how was that? I mean, th- th- there was a gigantic blast in the harbor. There was a warehouse that blew up and uh, it, w- it contained, uh, I don't know, some chemical, I can't remember. Yeah, the, which fertilizers. One? Yeah. Fertilizers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was just enormous and, mm. and many people died. And what? Mm. so what? when you were called to go down there, was your... Job mainly so, to so, yeah. So uh, over the years, so coming back to my experience, so in 2010 I worked with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders in Haiti, 
And that was, uh, you know, when I had also done my PhD, and my PhD was focused on looking on how international response can improve. And and one of the findings was that uh, and international teams, medical teams, are deployed uh, without really understanding the context, and not also either taking consideration on the type of hazards or what will be the needs. Is more like a, a reflex, humanitarian reflex, to send field hospitals, and it sort of been considered that to be a priori good to do that. Mm. Um, but then we started being, I, I started out uh, being a bit more critical towards that. And, and together with the World Health Organization, we started this what's called Emergency Medical Teams Initiative back in 2010. And then, uh, or t- 2013 was the actual publication where we did the classification. We set standards for international deployments because previously, Anybody just wanting to do good could could send a team of, of doctors or surgeons and start operating anywhere without any accountabilities. There was no search function, there was no coordination because the affected country really didn't have the resources to, to manage incoming teams, especially mm. if it was a low-income country uh, affected. So this sort of over the years has developed now quite uh, uh, nicely into becoming uh, a platform or, or you can say like a 112 number that affected governments can call upon. Uh, and uh, the teams that can respond, uh, they can be, uh, depending on, on their level, they can be like a health center or a hospital or, or an advanced hospital, different categories. And then for each level, there are specific standards, meaning that you need to adhere to these standards and mm-hmm. you need to be, so to say, verified by, by the World Health Organization to see whether you adhere to these standards. And then, so now there's a, a team of 30 or 40 international uh, teams ranging from health centers up to advanced hospitals that are ready to be deployed within a very short notice. And you can also hold them accountable. You can coordinate them. Mm-hmm. So uh, when the Beirut blast happened on August 4th, I was asked by, by the World Health Organization to travel to Beirut to support the WHO office in Lebanon to coordinate these incoming uh, teams because that's what was for certain. There was going to be a lot of uh, teams and field hospitals arriving. Yeah. But now we had a mechanism to, to coordinate and, and to hold teams accountable and to task them uh, to different areas. Um, and very quickly, of course, it became clear that, that Lebanon, uh, there was no need for trauma care. It mm. was very well managed within the system, as you said. Yeah, because it was, it's not a very poor country. It's no, no. And, and also they have, uh, you know, very commercialized health care, you yeah. can say so. Okay. You know, within the city, they have more MRIs that w- per capita than we do in Stockholm, oh, for really? example. Because it's really, you know, adapted uh, yeah. uh, and to, to uh, uh, commercialized healthcare. So there were all these services available. There were around 42 hospitals, actually, that receive injured. And there were a lot of injured, some, some up around 6,000 injured. Uh, mm-hmm. Only 200 died, um, despite this horrible blast. But uh, 85% of those injured were very lightly injured, so they could be sort of catered for uh, outside, basically, the hospitals be sutured or stapled, and then they could go home. Okay. And then only around 15% of those injured, so eight or 900 or something, were, were actually admitted to hospitals, and among them, many of them could go home the next day. So actually, the, the health system in, in Lebanon managed very well to take care of, of these injured, even though they had uh, economic problems and and but they had the uh, human resources and really the experience because as you know Lebanon mm. has gone through many disasters yes. uh, civil war and car bombs and and uh, so they have uh, they have done their homework and they yeah. have uh, really experienced so they, they managed very well but despite that of course a lot of international teams were deployed 
But then thanks to these mechanisms uh, that, that we had, we were able to control, uh, you could say, WHO to, to, to ask for the correct type of assistance, which will and then retask those that arrived within this civilian mm. mechanism, WHO EMT mechanisms, and ask them rather to focus on COVID care because that was Yes, uh, was, that was, was something that issue. happened afterwards. You, you yeah. kind of refocused, yeah. And then despite uh, that there were no needs, there were a lot of military hospitals. And this is something that we've seen recently, how, how militaries start acting also in this so-called humanitarian crises. And, and this, there's no way that the WHO can control the militaries. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a political dimension to that, um, which we I think we have only started to, to understand. And, and uh, bilateral deployments. So there were, there were field hospitals from, from uh, Morocco, from Jordan, from... Italy, and that was, uh, I think, the most fascinating thing. They arrived uh, from Italy with the military field hospitals to care for trauma, and they were ready to start treating patients one month after. So you really wonder, you know, what did these people uh, that deployed, uh, how did they think about the situation? So it was yeah. almost Good like question. an insult, and, and I was really trying to get them to, since I was there as the coordinator for WHO, I was telling the police, can you retask to do COVID care instead? Because that's really where the needs will be. Mm. And actually, this Italian field hospital, they had been deployed in Italy during the fall, uh, during the spring. Mm. So they knew how to ca- take care of COVID. But they were not allowed uh, to do this. And we, we were really struggling to try to do that. So uh, overall, um, the response, international response, um, was uh, good in the sense that we could redirect it. And, and the civilian, uh, these emergency medical teams that were within the WHO mechanism, they, uh, instead of doing trauma care, they started uh, providing support to uh, to. Uh, the public system to deal with COVID and uh, we were sc- scaling up mm. ICU beds and, and so most of these uh, international teams that arrived uh, within that mechanisms, they had previous experience of working with mm. COVID in, in Italy mm-hmm. and, and in mm. Poland and mm. other. So actually, uh, because... Uh, in, what, what, in, was it fairly new to <coughs> Lebanon at, at that time? Yeah, because they, uh, you the know, pandemic? They, actually it was the, you could say it was the first wave in, because okay. they were very mm-hmm. quick in closing the borders during the spring. So. There were very few cases, so th- there was no experience really of dealing with COVID. Um, yeah. Even though, of course, they had made uh, plants, uh, but uh, as we all know, with plants they don't start working until <laughs> we have the knife on the throat, so yeah. to say. And, and, and sometimes uh, the, the plants are thrown out the window, also. Wh- yeah, wh- when, and, and when, then, and then the with this economic happens. collapse that, that happened in 2019, I think there were a lot of other issues that that uh, the Lebanese health sy- uh, system had to deal with. So, of course, they were. You know they had plans, but but a lot of these plans had not been implemented. But uh, so it was f- very useful, I think, for these internationals to come to share their experience. So in that sense, the the deployment and my role um, totally shifted from yeah. really trauma care mm-hmm. of, of injured to COVID care, and uh, I think uh, we we made a, 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 a quite a, a difference. And and there are still these teams that that are still in Lebanon now, and and we have managed to support the Ministry of Health to go from around 200 ICU beds to over 1,000 uh, ICU beds. Uh, and we're uh, in a system where, where, where the public system is extremely weak um, and, and most healthcare, 85% mm-hmm. of healthcare is done provided by the private system. Mm-hmm. So that's another dimension that I, f- I find very fascinating, how to engage the private uh, health system in disasters. And we see this also in Sweden now. Yeah. You know how um, that the public system has to do everything. So, 
can the, can you leave the private to just to uh, skim the milk or should they also <laughs> be be held accountable and and, yeah. and also and, and then you write need to write good contract contracts with them and, and hold them accountable but this thing with Lebanon I mean how how severe has the uh, the epidemic the pandemic been in, in in that country since then I mean compared to other countries there are so many countries that have been affected very mm. severely and if the blast hadn't happened maybe mm. <laughs> I mean the WHO would never have sent teams specifically to, to Lebanon no. to do this. No. I mean, that, you could just clear. as well have gone to uh, mm. dozens of other countries mm. to, to help them with the COVID So that's, care. that's very true. But what you could see is, is after the 4th of August, the cases started increasing quite uh, rapidly. And especially uh, since the uh, end of, of the last six weeks, you can say that the numbers has gone up dramatically. Mm-hmm. And then uh, around four weeks ago, they, they put on a, a quite a hard lockdown. There were some lockdowns during the, the autumn, but uh, in, in December they had uh, they really started a strict, or just after, sorry, New Year's Eve, actually, there was a, a hard lockdown. And I think that was a bit of the problem. And we've seen that in other countries where it's been relaxed over Christmas because, uh, you know, families must get together and... and uh you want to open the mm. shops and etc but but really it exploded and then you had an exponential growth uh, so it was totally out of control uh, for a while now it has gone down a bit but but still uh, the health system is is really overwhelmed and 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 uh, it's 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 barely managing and but because it it's um, you know the blast it was uh, 12 hours hard work or 24 hours hard work for most people this has now been uh, uh, in Lebanon six months of, of hard work and and so when it comes to disasters just thinking of the type of hazard that you're exposed to that um, is important to understand is it something that will go on for a long time or is it this type of just one type of event uh, terrorist attack mm. or or, mm. Uh, or or uh, you can say also earthquakes mm. if they happen in in uh, but then of course you need to deal with the rubble um and also if there's a lot of injuries and and bone uh, fractures etc that will take some time to recover but in general i think we we are not very good on analyzing the type of health needs that are after disasters we tend to be you know perplexed over over that oh it's a disaster we have to send the field hospital but uh, that's been my research a lot that uh, you know we have to understand better we have to critically analyze mm. um, it's somehow that it appeals to some humanitarian instinct inside mm. of us mm. we want to do something but mm. exactly what to do i think that ne- we need to understand and we better. S- we think that something is better than nothing but sometimes maybe nothing is better than that thing that we send <laughs> yeah and then also i think we have to understand uh, also the local capacities i think we tend yeah. to we it's a very I'd say a paternalistic or colonial mm-hmm. view that we have on on disasters in other countries that we have to come to their rescue, um, and I think that um, on we one have hand, a very on poor knowledge of um, poor yes. poor and and medium income countries, yeah, how, how they are. In so basically, what what we're dealing with is on one hand the vulnerabilities of uh, the country, meaning the socioeconomic situation, but also the capacity of the health system and and the resilience of the population. So that's one dimension. Then you have the actual hazard. Mm. And a disaster doesn't happen until hazard meets a vulnerability. So what you could do is either reduce the hazard, which sometimes is difficult. You can't take away the virus. You can't take away an earthquake. Earthquake, yeah. Um, to some extent, we could uh, take away uh, some flooding by by uh, building less uh, uh, levees. Uh, and yeah. Levee. But mainly, what we're, we're what we're dealing with here is to reducing vulnerabilities. And if we look globally on disasters, we've been very good on that globally. Mm-hmm. A country like Bangladesh for example, mm. 
been extraordinarily successful in reducing vulnerability. Yeah. You know, you were talking about how many millions were dying in, in 1971. There was half a million people that were dying yeah. in Bangladesh from, fl- from, from, from typhoons. Uh, and then gradually uh, that basically has, has uh, come to a very low number, a, a few thousand. Yes, uh, e- even I often have that as an example myself. Yeah. Uh, Bangladesh is a good example yeah. because it was, there, there, was a, there was a cyclone in 1971. Yeah. There was one big in, I mean, there, they've had several, but yeah. the same size cyclone in 1991. Yeah. And then there was a third one about the same size yeah. in 2008, I think yeah. it was, seven or eight. Yeah. And in the first one, as you said, half a million people died. Mm. The second one, 140,000. Yeah. And the last one, I think 4,000 4, died. Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's extremely yeah. salient. And they've a, done everything. Example. I mean, if you look on, on, on Bangladesh and, and how many people live there, if, uh, do you know how many people would live in, in Sweden if we would have the same density as they do in Bangladesh? I don't know, maybe a billion? <laughs> 450 million. 450. Well, so it's, it's very dense. Yeah. It's very mm. dense. And obviously the delta, and, and cl- it's, it's extremely dense there. And, so, and it's also flat, mm-hmm. meaning that there's no way to run uh, if the water increases. And you, know, you have the Ganges from the back, and then you have the, 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 wa- the ocean from mm-hmm. the other side. So there's really no way to escape. But what they've done is, is building this... Uh, uh, cyclone shelters mm-hmm. where people can actually go and, and seek shelter. They have better warning systems. Yeah. So we have much more uh, you know, intelligence now, mm-hmm. uh, text messages or... or uh, uh, people have types. phones also, yeah, they own yeah, phones, I mean, compared to how yeah, it used to be. Yeah. So they can they get the information. So And then they will know what to do. Um, but yeah. then, of course, you have uh, the, the indirect effects, which is you know, the cattle will die, the rice uh, with, with salt water, the crops will may be destroyed. So people survive, but the poverty and the, it, that's really becoming the, the big issue now yeah. how to recover following this type of the, whether it's flooding or, or this type of typhoons it, it's really putting a lot of, of strain on, on already uh, yeah. uh, p- people who are, are living with uh, basic economies of course so Bangladesh is an excellent example of a country that has had its fair share of d- disasters as is Lebanon which is a country that's have have had very many different types of disasters. You were talking about bombs. They were pretty used to bombs, I guess, and uh, terrorist attacks, and also, but also natural disasters and, and, uh, and now COVID-19, like every country has. So disasters come in, in many shapes and forms. So, uh, I mean, it, it might be difficult for a layman to, to compare uh, an earthquake with a flood and a pandemic and all that, but are there any common features and how does a big... Well, these are many questions. Actually, we can we can just start with mm. the common features. What what's what would you say is common among all kinds of uh, disasters that you see? I think um, it's interesting with the world with the word disaster because it means uh, different to different people. You know, uh, yeah. if uh, my uh, whatever girlfriend or boyfriend breaks up, that can be a disaster. You know, the, the, so it, it's For on sure. different. If it can be on, on very many different uh, levels, but. You know, in my world, we, we talk about it that it's um, uh, it's a, some some sort of break of equilibrium. So something happens. It's it's a crack of some kind, and that crack can come quickly and or slowly. But that break of equilibrium creates uh, um, damages uh, to to health, to uh, ec- economy, to infrastructure, and um, all those effects. They they cause problems uh, that exceed the capacity of those that are affected by it. So basically, those those are the components that 
I use and, and, and I think are m- most commonly used as, as, as the definition of a disaster. So which means that sort of this normality um, uh, will vary a lot. I mean, a lot of people in, in, in uh, low income countries, they live on, on they survive uh, in a way that I personally, I wouldn't survive more than uh, a few days uh, with how they manage to cope. So we have coping capacities, we have resilience that are you know, um, the mechanisms uh, that you use in order to survive. And we, in Sweden, for example, up north, if you travel, you need to have a shovel and you need to have warm clothes because mm-hmm. if your car breaks down, uh, you will die unless, uh, uh, you know, you have these uh, gears with you. While in Stockholm here, nobody uh, thinks about that. So mm. that factor of resilience is, is, is another one uh, that also needs to be included. And I, I think on a personal level, we can also have different levels of, of resilience. And I think the Swedish society, uh, we have been very spared from disasters. So I would, uh, you know, argue that our resilience has been uh, not very uh, extensive <laughs> and so uh, would a, would a disaster of, of the scale that they they experience in like Lebanon and Bangladesh affect Swedes worse than 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 people in those countries because we're not used to it we don't have the resilience we don't have the I think on on a society level or individual level I think initially at least um, people would complain a lot but once you are confronted with this type of situation and I think we saw that uh, during the spring in Sweden with with the covid care that for example the the healthcare system very managed very quickly to to redirect and got rid of stupid routines and and mm-hmm. you know this bureaucracy that's been been a pest to the to the system and, and has, has really taken away the pleasure of working yeah. I, th- I think a lot of of uh, colleagues i discussed they were very happy that that they could actually practice medicine yeah. and not uh, practice bureaucracy mm-hmm. and, and and so I, i think in that sense um we we managed to adapt but i, I think um, you know we've been spared we haven't had war for over 200 years so mm. Of course, this will affect our soul, and we don't even have a narrative about disaster. When you're in Lebanon, everybody has a narrative about disasters, and mm. you know my friends down there. They, they, you know, they're uh, w- one of my friends. His brother had been killed in a, in a bomb in in the 19 during the civil war, and and then he had been out working. He came back with his money, and then last year all his savings uh, were suddenly gone because of this economic cr- uh, crash, the bank. Mm, mm, so mm, all mm. these things, I, I sort of started freaking out and, and, and thinking, what? how would I react myself yeah, in yeah. front of this? I have no... I don't have a narrative. I don't have any. I don't have any experience. But I mean, of it's this. interesting to to ponder whether that's a, an advantage or a disadvantage because I mean, it's it's all a mindset. Yes. Yes. If you are expecting disasters yes. every day or every yeah, week, yeah. then you have a special mindset, and yeah. you might be almost. Uh, I don't know. This is m- m- perhaps a bit philosophical, but you might o- almost uh, lure the da- disasters to to find you. But if you're not expecting a disaster, you might be more. Actually, more rigged, better rigged to 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 handle them when they arrive, or or not. I don't know. Mm. I'm not sure because. But I'm just to to, to finish no, my. I, I was working here. with, with uh, uh, in Kashmir after the earthquake in 2006 there, and and then it was interesting to note how how the the local population talked about it, and for them it was fatalism. Yeah, they had not prayed good enough. They had not been good enough Muslims. So this was the punishment. Mm. So it was not uh, really the, the fault of the government, which in Sweden we would blame everything. <laughs> Always, on, on. there is, uh, you know, someone has uh, to take responsibility. Somebody has to take responsibility for this happening, and and that something can happen without a clear um, somebody responsible is is uh, unacceptable mm. uh, here in 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 our setting. So. 
I find that sort of, um, I think it's also an easier way to cope with it, uh, that you have, uh, there's something else uh, that we can't control. And I guess it deals with, with having control and, and mm. we are very much of a controlled society mm-hmm. and, and we have, you know, we can plan our agenda a lot. Uh, we have, uh, every, we expect everything to happen according to, to our own agenda and then if something breaks that, it, it disrupts uh, our mind. So in that sense, I think we're more vulnerable because uh, our um, coping capacity yeah. and, and is lower. But during during the spring, last spring when COVID arrived, when, and when Sweden um, gradually became famous for 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 having its its own uh, strategy so to speak uh, um, which differed from almost every other country which is a bit exaggerated because it was mainly the same but is it less less harsh but anyway people had i think a hard time to to explain why that was and there were so many different mm-hmm. explanations like you said we haven't had war for 200 years somebody some some people try to explain it by that because we're not used to disasters so that's why we think that every everything's going to be all right and we don't take the right measures but on the other hand you could just look at look up on that on um, the other way around i mean in that case we we sh- the swedes should be super scared mm. for something like this uh but and and the finns who'd had war two wars uh, 50 60 years ago they they sh- they should I mean, if if you reason that in that way, you could think that the Finns would be very cool mm, about it and think, mm. oh, it's just a pandemic, you know. <laughs> But they were really, really tough uh, in their measures. But I, I I think you know from the the Swedish, I don't think we understand. Uh, uh, I mean, now I was living in 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 Lebanon for five months during COVID, and understanding the how different countries have dealt with it. I, I don't we I don't think we understand the liberty we have still maintained here and the personal space and ability to choose ourselves, not to have an, a military at the street corner, not having a policeman writing a, a check for you on on 1000 euros because you you are out walking, not having mm. to register with text messages I'm going to the pharmacy. That is something we haven't experienced and I think most people don't even know that that's what uh, normal life is about. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, coming back to to, um, this policy, I think any policy in any country needs to somehow be adjusted to to the spirit of that country and and to the soul Mm -hmm. of that country. And I I think here we are not very much of an authoritarian society and and I don't think anybody would want to have policemen with with, uh, AK-4s at the street corners or, or... i don't think we would like to have that i mean uh, there are some people who advocate for it um, but i don't think uh, the overall the the population um, would want that on the other hand how can we demand people to take responsibility i mean if we travel with a and i go by bus here or or subway which i sometimes do i I more prefer to bike but um, you can see that some people don't have any respect whatsoever of of keeping distance Mm. and, and they don't care so i think that that balance of of you know having people take responsibility and and I guess it relates back to trust um, you know I worked with the Ebola outbreak in 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 West Africa and and you know coming back to to how can you need to trust and the same thing in Lebanon you know nobody trusts the government and I remember doing some outbreak investigations with with, uh, uh, with WHO in in uh, the avian influenza in Egypt where we looked on on Uh, how the system was geared to to managing uh, uh, the avian influenza and and in general in all these settings Sierra Leone Egypt and and Lebanon and there was no trust whatsoever in the government mm. 
And uh, so you must trust something else or you don't trust anything. And, and in that setting, of course, then the government needs to put somebody with a gun because there is no trust. And the only thing is, is uh, you know, people respect Vi- is the trigger. Respect on, uh, violence, yeah. While here, the threat of violence. Uh, we have uh, some some trust and, and maybe we put too much, um, you know, confidence in, in, in that people will mm. will uh, follow the rules and regulations. Um And you know, but but also the, it's been a rapidly changing society. If I go back, you know, twenty uh, or thirty years in time, it was a totally different, more of a controlled society where you couldn't do uh, as you liked. You had to follow uh, routines and, mm. and, and mm. what your neighbor was saying. It was a very strong peer pressure. I think that peer pressure has decreased, mm-hmm. and and, and uh, Sweden has, in that sense, become a, a more modern society um uh, but but uh, i still think that trust is there but of course for a lot of of new groups and and young uh, people uh, they it's difficult for them to to understand uh, uh, the importance of following these rules yeah we still have uh, though uh, this sense that we, we don't we don't accept de- accept death or no. disease at all we think that life should be perfect uh, at all instances and uh, and uh, we we have eternal life but that's an, was an interesting thing in lebanon when you know when when we were putting up icu care and we were trying when we were writing the so the admission criteria to put somebody in icu and this was in the public system where where we scaled up the number of beds there were very few available so we were trying to put you know um using you know some sort of frailty scale that maybe you shouldn't put uh, somebody who's 85 years of age and has these comorbidities yeah. and, and especially not in ventilators mm. because the chances and we saw that when we look on that many of the hospitals had had 100% mortality of those intubated and we were starting to ask ourselves how can it be this and that comes back to that in lebanon uh, you know that that really what you do to your parents or your grandparents is is you want to do everything for them yeah and and really uh, it doesn't matter if it's not if it's not worthwhile you mm-hmm. still want to mm-hmm. do it because mm-hmm. that's uh, of respect to mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. so that's another dimension of not really accepting yes uh, yes it's, it's not just western no no western uh, world uh, i, I know uh, i mean it's it's a general human trait uh, or feature that yeah and, and i found it even to be even stronger it was like uh, even among doctors that they yeah. they could not say no to somebody who was 95 years old who wanted mm. to be in icu that's it was traditional impossible. also they have respect for elderly and, yes uh, and, and and also the belief that that you know uh, palliative care mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. it, it basically doesn't exist in in the middle east because it's it's uh, it's and it's nobody wants to talk about it oh, yeah, it's yeah. really That's sensitive uh, subject one uh, would think that they they had an, a different view on that but okay fascinating well we're all going to die i mean we can i can die the, the moment i step out of the street here after yes. this interview <laughs> you you don't know really hopefully i will live a few years more but so uh, you have been talking a, a a bit about this uh, this this question here but um how the outside world reacts to disasters uh, the outside world often being the western world the rich world and and the disasters happening in poorer countries but and if there is a reasonable correlation between the needs and the outside response you have you have been talking a little bit about that as well uh, does the, does the global community react differently to different types of disasters Are we are we better at understanding certain types of disasters and and less good at understanding other types of disasters? And if if Ab- so, absolutely. Which ones? Um, and I think particularly what what if you know looking on this uh, WHO mechanisms that we're developing, there's a lot of of teams and and and. Uh, actors that would like to be ready to go to earthquakes in middle income countries and uh, uh, natural di- like um, 
Nepal earthquake, you know, that was really crowded. There were so many oh, yeah. teams wanting to go there because you can go in, you can stay two weeks and then you can go home and, and you've done something. Uh, but to go to um, Central African Republic uh, in the conflict and, and set up something or at the time Ebola, um, even though I must say that, that there was quite a, a good international response uh, after a while uh, with Ebola when the, when the initial fear had, had worn off a little bit. And also, uh, which I think is interesting, and I think that's a bit how we need to look upon it, is more from a global health security perspective. I think a lot of these interventions uh, to go to help after disaster has been governed by some sort of charity aspects or humanitarian mm -hmm. that we want to help. And then these quality criteria, what we do has not been so important. It's more that we do something. I mean, you can hear in the word humanitarian, it means I am human doing something. Yeah. It's not what you do, no. but it's that you are human and, and you're doing a nice gesture, which is good. You know, it's like a uh, reflex we have to help one another. But um, my my point here and, and my research is about, okay, let's maintain that instinct, but let's let's put some, some knowledge to it uh, so to make sure that actually what we do uh, is also has uh, real impact mm. and, and really responds to actual needs. But this global health security, I think, is interesting. And w w I think now with the COVID vaccination, uh, you know, we had there's been a lot of discussions now on, on that very little of the vaccine has gone to, to low and, and lower middle income countries and, and that most uh, of uh, high income countries are really uh, buying up all the vaccines. Uh, and then it seems like from a charity perspective that they want to share it later as they like. But I would like to hi highlight here the global health security agenda. I mean, if we want to control this virus, and, and uh, I mean, we'll have to live with it, but, but I think uh, the, the quicker we can get down the burden of it, uh, the less chance it is that it will mutate uh, over the years. So for global health security reasons, I think we need to, to think about vaccination. So maybe uh, to leave that charity uh, and, uh, aspect of why, why or, or equity, there's also this, this uh, idea of equity. But I mean, rather to focus on global health security, uh, we could uh, very much uh, do the vaccinations and, and create a, a, an, an agenda for it. I think uh, in, in the West Africa during the Ebola outbreak, that was not a humanitarian uh, intervention. It was global health security, regional stability. That's mm. why the U.S. military was there. That was why, why the, the British army was there. They were not there for humanitarian purposes. They were there to stabilize mm. the region. Mm. And we saw the same thing in, in, in Congo, that, that the interventions to stop Ebola was only about uh, global health security. And, uh, you know, whether a mother or a child was dying of some other reason, it was not part of their mandate. But if we're talking about something specific, such as vaccinations, I think that can be done. You know, clearly, you can clearly create an agenda for doing it and, and for creating a political um, buy into it that goes beyond charity because charity is something that's done mm. on the weekends it, mm. it's not uh, it, it, but but so, so i think we can we so can it will be a smarter strategy to to in order to control the, the I, pandemic I, th I think for to for vaccinate to, to convince maybe children in poor countries rather than than uh, elderly in rich countries no i um, i th i think that w what we need to do and and this has had some discussion with some african colleagues i think we should uh, focus on 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 vaccinating uh, healthcare staff of course and then also, of course, those most vulnerable, old with, with other conditions. But for the rest, um, if you ask some, a Minister of Health in an African country, you know, how they want to use their money. And here we must remember that the difference of a country like uh, Congo, where there's $15 mm. per person per year, mm. um, 
as compared to the U.S., where they have more than ten thousand dollars per person per year. So the difference between the poorest and 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 the richest in terms of of health expenditures per capita is six hundred and fifty times. Yeah, extreme. So you cannot have the same type of policy. Uh, you need to adapt. So. Uh, then these fifteen or thirty dollars, whatever they have, that that will be gone with two vaccinations. Only buying the vials okay. uh, for the rest okay. of the population. So then you don't have any money for any other thing, and we have a big risk. Unless here, it's I think. it's paid for by the outside. Yeah, world. and then if it's paid by for, from the outside world. Um, Using that global health security agenda for sure, you can do that. But then it's maybe not healthcare; it's something else. But I think there's so much else to do in a health system. Uh, and and if you ask the Minister of Health, I'm quite sure they will come with other uh, priorities than than vaccinating the children. Um, I think we have to deal with this virus, and and apparently the the virus is not um, so dangerous uh, for children, and and it's not circulating so much there. So. And we know also that in in sub-Saharan Africa and low-income countries, that you know, um, the, um, half of the population is under 18 years of age. Um, so, which means that um, yeah. you don't have so many people. Actually and we we haven't we haven't seen that many cases no, in Africa. No. That many, especially not that many deaths. No. Well, the statistics are wobbly, perhaps, but but still, it but, doesn't. But but last few weeks there's been an increase. But what what's interesting to note, a lot of ministers uh, have died now yeah. in, in Mozambique, in yeah, Zimbabwe, yeah. in, in yeah, South okay. Africa. So, and that's maybe more of a sign that the old people with with comorbidities uh, that somehow it's it's quite. And a country like Tanzania, where we don't know anything because it mm. you know officially COVID doesn't exist in, mm. in Tanzania. Mm. So. Uh, but I think for a majority, uh, meaning uh, the, the the young one, this is not a big uh, issue. No, no. And I don't think it will put pressure either on, on the virus in, in terms of, of uh, mutating uh, in the same sense that among somebody who's immunocompromised and, and 60 or 70 years old, uh, that is a different story. Um, mm. So we need to be and put everything on the agenda. And, and the risk here, of course, is that this COVID vaccination becomes another vertical project project. Um, and I guess we could do that if it's sort of for the global uh, health security agenda, but then things need to be separated out why we do it. Mm, uh, mm. Do, do you think, uh, talking about Africa here, do you think uh, that it, it's, it was a big mistake by these countries, many of these countries, to to uh, impose lockdowns uh, early on because of the, 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 the lesser effect that... that the, the virus has on their on the populations in sub-Saharan Africa. It seems like it's they been were, detrimental yeah. to their yeah. other health issues. It seems like uh, you know that uh, closing down and everybody was sort of celebrating that they won uh, over COVID, and then boom, they get it in their face now uh, six months later. I think the main, I mean, closing down of, of, of the country was also uh, meaning that a lot of people went into poverty. Mm. And also, which I think is a really big problem, is, is that children have not uh, continued to go to school. And, yeah. and that, uh, I think if, if Sweden has done something good here, is to show that actually children should go to school. Yeah. Um, and and so I think that that will be the contribution that we, we didn't close the schools here. And I think that was probably the most important thing that we showed the world. And I think there are very few uh, countries now that, that are closing the school because children uh, does not uh, tend to drive this epidemic. 
and also uh, teachers doesn't seem to be uh, more um, infected than than others so no. uh, and i think that is something very important to and you're talking about vaccinations etc so children most probably should not be be vaccinated it it's uh, and especially not if you have other options to 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 use the limited resources in a, in a low income country mm. uh well generally the speed and the scope of the uh, the the reaction to this pandemic was uh, the global response rather was unprecedented we have we haven't seen that kind of reaction before i mean we've had pandemics before before several and and uh, i mentioned uh, in the beginning here the, the spanish flu which killed of mm. course a lot, many many more people and young people was much more um, dangerous than than this virus but there there were no lockdowns as far as i no and but of course then we had had the first world war just uh, before that so it was particular uh, situation um but i i don't think uh, actually not even during war times we've had lockdowns of the scale that we've seen no now curfews uh, i mean in countries that have been <laughs> at peace for, for for a very long time so why why do you think these these sweeping measures happened this time around and never before why do you think this happened because china started you think so yeah explain uh, elaborate no it, they they contained it and they were very quick and and showing and i think to go against what the chinese did i think it would have been very difficult for a lot of countries so i think it, they showed this is possible to do uh, but 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 did, did we know that in march well we saw what they did uh, mm. and then um, i think they did it very early and um, from our point uh, we, we, it came much later here and it had i think more in that sense more severe effects but i remember watching a, a, a documentary i think it must have been in march um, from where they welded together doors in in china so they did it very strongly and mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and i think so from the politician side uh, point of view and i think that's really where we've had the discussion there you know our uh, chief epidemiologist has has said that everybody went crazy because uh, you know these type of measures that had never been used before suddenly were being implemented and uh, that would be my take home from it that that uh, we we So they were impressed by China. China. Well, they saw no other type of they wanted to do something and I think the politicians has to show uh, and I think that's what what the Swedish so-called model has been criticized for is that it's not been very uh, prompt and very you know authoritarian and 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 uh, and here uh, what what everybody wanted was to have clear message of, of yeah. what to do and you could even see in a country like France where you normally have people protest and and yes. and, and challenge they were totally quiet there was mm. nobody challenging that uh, you know lockdown in in France because people were afraid people and they were thought afraid, this is probably scared, the yeah, correct thing to do easy and to control a people that's scared yes. <laughs> and we've seen that i mean now uh, and and uh, there are opportunities to 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 control uh, a population using this type of of fear so, yeah, so yeah, i think that's yeah. uh, that's a bit of a of a scary part of this uh, we have to response. be a bit careful perhaps to I see think where this goes because you can justify this mm. type of measures uh, by saying we're and, just and now you can pro- politicians can prolong yeah, them yeah. and say that well we don't know we're not sure there's a mutation going on here so yeah. we just keep it like this for mm. another two years mm. three years four years when will it ever end no. i mean it's No and and I think especially in, in a lot of countries where we've seen uh, riots of political reasons uh, this is one way of of saying uh, controlling them and and, mm. and there's a number of countries like that where where where, uh, where the covid the lockdown has been used to to stop uh, protests we saw that it, also in Lebanon because there okay. was a lot of protests after yeah. the blast and and then uh, the lockdowns came and and so there's a lot of 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 uh, tension yeah. you can say and 
And then it's difficult, of course, to be the one uh, breaking uh, a curfew or, or, or a lockdown uh, by with with protests, uh, because then you can be held accountable for for you know spreading of co- of the disease. And, and yeah. But it is a bit a bit a bit ridiculous sometimes. You see people standing in line uh, when they sh- b- to board a plane, and they have to be two or three meters apart, and they have all have of course uh, face masks. And then uh, 15 minutes later, they, des- they sit in a plane like mm. two decimeters apart from each other. So I mean, some things really don't make sense. But anyway, uh, I, I had on the podcast also Martin Kuldorf, a Swedish doctor who's signed this uh, famous or. Fairly famous uh, Great Barrington Declaration group of doctors who are very critical to the to the harshest forms of lockdowns, and they mean that they, the, the the collateral damage of those mm. are worse than the actual disease. Uh, I mean, you can of course debate whether that is true or not, but but he said that when this happened, uh, well, you you explain this reaction with uh, politicians being impressed by China. Maybe that's true because he said that at, he he was so shocked that all the contingency plans, all the preparedness plans that were for pandemics that that were in place i mm. mean who has had them for many years they were just ditched mm. thrown out out the window mm. within weeks mm. and never followed i mean there mm. were none there weren't talk about closing borders they weren't no. talk about closing down schools none of that mm. so it's just like new rules new rules I, th- I think that's very challenging to have this old sort of evidence and and, and practice the rules in in this type of new network society where the words and, and rumors are being spread. So uh, uh, I would uh, assume that, that uh, and, and here I think we can also look on the Swedish uh, so-called model, that you have to adapt it to, to the, the changing context in terms of what the population looks like, how social media is using. So I think what we have, it's been, a, we are a bit conservative in that sense uh, when it comes to, to what we think is the best, uh, you know, strategy. Uh, but maybe uh, it has to somehow be uh, tested and adapted and and how does it function among a younger population that gets their information and and from other sources that we are used to i mean in the swedish system you know you you should be uh, if you have if there's this siren that uh, echoes you should uh, you know uh, close the doors and turn on the radio mm. uh, most people don't even have a radio <laughs> nowadays so <laughs> i think true. that that the, the rapidly changing landscape um, uh, needs these uh, the policies we have to be uh, adapted which is is difficult uh, um, and and because we and we are also fact very much fact based this is the way it should be but if 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 uh, the reality looks different or or if it's interpreted in a different way then um, i mean we want people to follow it uh, and and to do uh, what they're told but but uh, that is 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 very difficult mm, especially mm. when people become afraid and and then trust comes back again as i said before i mean you need to have some trust uh, and and how to uh, nurture trust i think it's so uh, important and That's something I've been fascinated about. How, how uh, at least uh, in in countries, most countries they they trust uh, their own system, even though it can vary. So if if you compare Norway with Sweden, for example, mm. 
the, you can see there is a lot of of, of um, uh, nationalism. <laughs> yeah, almost. And, and and you can see that the Norwegians yeah. think that what we did was look at our and and then the Swedes say yeah, but we have had more freedom. And then so it, it's it a bit ridiculous, really. I yeah. mean, the, the differences are so small, so we shouldn't really. No, but but it it creates uh, you know rally around the flag type this type yeah. of, of situations like uh, sports that or type of, of, mm. of unfortunately, but. And and I also think the long-term effects of this um, we have not seen yet. I mean, a country like Portugal, for example, that was uh, during the spring and early mm. early autumn was was seen as the great example yes, of yes, how you could do it. Was hailed for its good. Uh, and now, pang boom! It's yes. it's the, one of the worst uh, countries with the highest mortality. Yeah, so yeah. it can change very, very quickly. quickly yeah. And and uh, that's something I learned with this virus uh, that don't be too sure. Yeah. Don't make. So um, and and things we can't uh, make an assessment until maybe in a couple of years. It doesn't follow our normal logic. This this virus for sure. No. It doesn't develop, and it's very difficult to predict. Um, mm. And and so I think we have to be very humble. And and despite that, uh, we have to make plans. We have to have predictions and and um, uh, for the future. And uh, and and so you have to be have a si- you have to have a system of monitoring things basically in real time to understand how to adapt. It's very difficult to 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 plan. Mm. It's it, more difficult than planning the weather or, yes. or, or seeing what the weather would look like. Yeah, uh, and, and that uh, I think that's one of the main challenges. That yeah. it's, it's a very difficult. So this virus. is a early question to ask, perhaps then, uh, considering what you just said. But uh, wh- what do you think will be the main uh, takeaway from the pandemic? If, when we look back in a couple of years or three years or so? Well, I think on one hand it will be, uh, you know, on, on how difficult this global institution has had to, to, to maintain their, their relevance and, and mm. uh, like EU or, or the UN uh, and that these type of mechanisms have, haven't been very successful in United. Uh, you know, it's like people have retracted to, to even in Sweden, we, you know, you, you suddenly Stockholm, we don't know what's going on in other parts of the country. It mm. becomes very localized in that sense. So I think that will be one dimension. Uh, on the other hand, I think the understanding of, of, of uh, that uh, this type of, of uh, pandemics can happen. And, mm. and, and also, uh, we in that sense, we've been lucky this time that it has not been uh, worse. Uh, I've been thinking about that, the healthcare, that we managed to expand the, the healthcare system to, to cope. Um, very few, there are some countries, of course, where it's gone uh, over over the top, mm. but for the rest, uh, it's it's stayed. Uh, but it's what, managed, what, yeah. what, what about if it had been 10 times uh, as, as- As intense, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, what would have happened then? Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, so I was part of also developing this field hospital in Elvsjömässan, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Uh, being- Wh- Which was never used, actually. No, and, and then I remember I was in the county council, uh, we were discussing whether to, mm-hmm. to, to open it, mm-hmm. uh, and then it was just, uh, had it been 10 more cases okay. then uh, they would have but then but went, went they down m- there in May June they managed so, to, yeah. to, to in mm. mid-April to mm. maintain and, and really uh, building out more and more beds mm. So, but it never went over the top so to say so that you know it, it could have uh, had uh, 1000 beds there uh, so it, then it really would be in a pandemic hospital but that didn't happen. So I think in most countries uh, we managed. I mean, Portugal now they need they have uh, help from Germany okay. with doctors mm-hmm. flying in and setting up uh, facilities. So, but it, it's really on on the margins. It's not that we've been totally overwhelmed. No, no. And also in disasters, if this is a disaster, we, you have to adapt adapt to the situation. So when yes. when when it gets. Yep. 
difficult. You just have to to increase the resources, I guess, yeah. and, and and focus it on where it's needed. So and what we can see in Lebanon now, for example, is that people are are staying at home. Uh, they get oxygen concentrators. They can get you know cortisone treatment at home by by doctors or or by by uh, friends okay. and colleagues. And yeah. So a lot of people, which means that those that uh, come to the hospital mm. they are extremely sick mm-hmm. so they were uh, always be ready for for going to the intensive pa- care unit <laughs> care, uh, which they so, don't so, have so nobody goes yeah. to the hospital unless they really 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 need uh, you know extra uh, this high flow no, uh, oxygen or something like that Mo- so a lot of the healthcare has been done in in at home based and, and and that's also very interesting you know how how much uh, can we uh, manage at home um, and that has been explored perhaps that's something for the future yeah Okay, uh, there is so much to say about disasters, and they, as we said, they come in many forms. Uh, if you look uh, globally and historically here, the number of deaths in disasters has gone down dramatically over the, over the decades, as as you know. And uh, uh, protective measures uh, are also immensely more efficient. You you mentioned Bangladesh than than just some decades de- decades ago. Is this development acknowledged? Would you say? I think uh, this is an interest. We're going to have a seminar about the myths of disasters. And yeah. I think one myth is that more people are dying. Uh, I think it's very difficult um, to grasp uh, with uh, the climate change and all these other threats that we have to 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 accept that, that actually... Uh, 2018 19 has been the low uh, and uh, has only 10,000 people you know officially uh, died from from natural disasters and of course indirect effects such as poverty etc that's a different but thing but that's nothing new either no no so so uh, you know historically uh, there's never been so few people that have died despite that uh, that mm. we have more people uh, now living uh, on the and, but people uh, don't like to hear that no Right. And, and it doesn't fit the narrative somehow. Uh, yeah. of, of, um, and and uh, there's a lot uh, of this type of myths when it comes to disaster. For example, that dead bodies uh, spread diseases and yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, epidemics. And, 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 it's a classic uh, myth. So it's a lot of, of this. Uh, but I, I think that, that, that it, it's something old and, and, and it's very in relation to myth. And, and we have very preconceived opinions about it. And, and you know, my Hans Rusling was my, my PhD supervisor and he... He he taught me a lot of things, but but uh, you know you need to think and 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 really debunking all these old preconceived opinions um, if there are and but really trying to look for the facts and and here uh, at least when it comes to direct death that that has gone down, but of course uh, with climate change uh, we will uh, there's a lot of more hazards uh, upcoming. So we really need to work on on reducing the vulnerability, and and especially when it comes to financial and and, and uh, property loss, etc. That that is really um, uh, a big issue mm. uh, that that people uh, lose that and and, and uh, fall into poverty. So so that um, is, is is another dimension uh, that that uh, we need to understand better, but also to support people uh, following disasters and not only go there to save their lives yeah. or, or whatever and then go home. But if it's if it's become, I mean, f- factually better, fa- fewer people are dying. It doesn't mean that we we, ha- we should stop doing things and no. stop helping people. Of course, I mean that's that's a no-brainer. But do you think do you think it would be difficult to, for for people to, or would would more people think that way that oh we don't have to do anything if they knew that it was it's actually becoming better or 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 is it encouraging for people to know that that things are actually 
getting better, we can do something. I mean, mm. how how should one look at this? What, what's the psychology behind these? I think there are, there are two dimensions. I think uh, um, a lot of, of agencies that are working with uh, disaster response, they, they want to maintain the momentum to, to also... Uh, on one hand, uh, of course, uh, collect money, but also, um, you know, keeping the focus on on those most vulnerable, which uh, is important. Uh, but I also think that people need good news to understand, and then probably also that we need to invest more in prevention, like we said with Bangladesh, for example. Um, don't wait until the disasters happen. We know what the hazards are. We know what the where the vulnerabilities are. And we can work on this, but it seems very difficult um, to raise uh, funds uh, to prevent things. Uh, it's mm. like we—it's not until something happens that that we react, and then that we react. I think it's, it's very good that we have this humanitarian imperative. It's like a reflex. We want to do something, but the challenge is here. So, so how can we make better use of these resources? And we need to have both. Of course, disasters will con- continue to happen. It's like traffic accidents. Uh, so. 1.4 million people die every year from uh, uh, traffic accidents. So, so close down all the traffic, yeah. eh? right? <laughs> so uh, and then so mm-hmm. so we need to work on on improving uh, traffic safety and 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 road traffic safety. But we also need to have those trauma hospitals ready to take care of those that are mm-hmm. injured. So uh, and that sometimes um, that public health and, and sort of curative care they are sometimes looked upon sip- separate things and. I have the fortunate of, of coming very much from clinical care from, and I also now work war, more with public health. So I can see the value of prevention, vaccinations, etc. But I also see the importance of, of, of really having assistance once it has happened. And, and that seems to be a bit difficult because you have specialists in public health, they only see the prevention. Then you have the other ones that are specialists on the trauma care and they only see that. I think we need to see both. And also to keep two thoughts uh, in the same time now yeah. with vaccinations and low-income countries. You know, let us think about the health system. Let's uh, make sure that that uh, the vulnerability doesn't increase. That vaccination program for children's continue. You know, if if everybody's going to be vaccinated for COVID, what will happen with with measles vaccination yeah, and yeah. polio for for children? <laughs> Uh, you know, so we it's, have. It's to already gone down, hasn't it? Yes, uh, yes, and, and that's uh, so we see actually that 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 poverty has, has started to increase mm-hmm. due to to lockdowns and and, and uh, uh, indirect effects, mm-hmm. um, and that um, it's difficult to keep you know two thoughts uh, at the in, same time. At yeah. the same time, but here we really need to have it and, and see mm-hmm. that there's not one solution to it. Mm-hmm. That was something that Professor Hans Rusling o- often said, and uh, you mentioned him and. Uh, and you, I think you you started the Swedish um, section yeah. of uh, doctors, yeah, 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 doctors mm-hmm. without borders uh, in the eighties, uh, and uh, he passed away a few years ago. And I, I was fortunate enough to also work a little bit with him, not as much as you did, but so I, I got to know him, which was great. And he was, of course, Swedish people know who he is, and people in, in other countries might might not know it, but he worked tirelessly. Uh, with digging up facts that showed that the world was a better place than most mm. people thought, but then, so he was he was actually he, he became famous as an optimist, but that annoyed him a little bit because he never wanted to call himself an optimist. So he he uh, he um, adamantly <laughs> said that uh, I'm not an optimist, I'm a possibilist. So he invented this. I don't know if he invented it, but he he called himself a a possibilist. Uh, me personally, I I I never really understood the the problem with with optimism. I think optimism is is a 
um, responsible way of looking at things because then, then you think there's a point in doing something. If you're a pessimist, there's no point in doing anything. So anyway, what's your stance on this? Would you call yourself a possibilist or an optimist? I think the, this Portuguese author, Jose Saramago, who got the Nobel Prize, he said that the, uh, the optimists, they don't want to change anything. It's only the pessimists that, that are... So I think you can turn it around. Okay. <laughs> but if you're a pessimist, then you think everything's going to go down the drain. And that to trigger that, so... Yeah. No, but I, I'm, I, I think I'm very much inspired by, by Hans, and, and uh, so, but I'm probably more of a realist, I mm-hmm. guess. But... I think you can also um, to have a positive or a negative view on on uh, uh, on what the world looks like. And if you look historically, I mean, things have improved dramatically, which doesn't mean there are problems. But mm. I mean, uh, it's it's been a linear increase in 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 wealth. In in uh, the you know when I started, it's the the child mortality has gone down with over fifty percent. Of course, you can be upset that it hasn't gone down by a hundred percent, but. Mm. You know, it was 12, 13 million uh, in in the early uh, 2000 when I started out, and now it's 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 uh, four, five million uh, mm. children under five that die. So, it ha- we've had dramatic effects, and and vaccination. 85 percent of all the children are vaccinated against measles, etc. So, children go to school more than before. So, there's a lot of of good things that has happened, but sometimes it seems. I mean, again, having two thoughts in your in your in in your mind on the same time, and and which doesn't mean that there are problems, and we have climate change which is a huge uh, issue of course and and migration and, and and conflicts that people need to to leave their house and they cannot stay and financial problems and and, uh, and that people want to to i think we talk a lot about refugees i think m- migration is a bigger issue there's something like a billion people that, that are migrating while the number of, of displaced or refugees is, is uh, much lower but um, people who need to leave because of financial reasons or climate reasons, um, we we don't co- call them refugees. We call them migrants, and, and they I don't think, have yeah, a legal status. I think yeah, I think about three percent of the yeah. population of the world are migrants, and it's been it's been yeah, like yeah, that for yeah, fifty yeah. years, more more or less. And that you know, people want a better home. And I, I used to think about the, the the Swedish history. You know, in the between eighteen fifties and and the early nineteen hundreds, we were. There's uh, 25% of the Swedish population uh, emigrated from Sweden. You know, one million people left to go to America yeah. to, to to look for a better future, uh, and they were able to do so because uh, there was still virgin territory there, and even though they stole it from the uh, from the uh, Indians there, so so. But but still, uh, there was a future, uh, and I think that um, uh, view, you know, being an optimist or or realist, I think the young people needs needs to have. Some uh, something to look forward to. They need to have dreams, and I, I think that is is why people start migrating now because yeah. they want a future, mm-hmm. and they want they can't uh, th- they c- can't even imagine staying where they are. They want to move on. They want to to fulfill their dreams, uh, and that has you know been through mankind. I think that type of striving from from the young generation and. Uh, the question is whether we could, uh, you know, uh, accommodate this, accommodate uh, yeah. it, or mm. or, or mm. forbid them mm. to do this. Um, I think it's going to be difficult to forbid it yeah. to just put up a, a wall, but uh, it's, it's a challenge, challenge for sure. And I've been talking about this on the podcast before. It's it's a, a big issue, as you say, migration. Johan von Treb, thank you so much for joining the show, and good luck with your very important task. Thank you very much. Thank you.